listening to Heart of the Ark podcast from the Office for Evangelization in the Archdiocese of Newark. We're coming to you to bring knowledge and some courage as we voyage through this life as missionary disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Jennifer Benke, and I'm co-hosting this podcast with my friend and colleague, Father John Gordon. Listeners, and thank you for tuning in to the Heart of the Ark. My name is Jennifer Benke. I am the Associate Director of Evangelization for the Archdiocese of Newark here, and I am joined today by Richard Clark, the Director of Music at the Holy Cross Cathedral in Boston. Dr. Clark, Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing. I'm doing well. Thank you. Um, so the doctor, it must be an honorary because I'm looking over my shoulder. So who's Doctor Clark? Uh, it, my my, my sister. That would be my sisters. You're talking about. I got okay. two Doctor Clarks in the family. Um, I've been called Doctor Clark a lot. I appreciate it. I'm still waiting for my honorary degree. But uh, thank you. That's we, very kind. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So. Um, Egg on my face. Um, how? No, um, no, you're fine. You're fine. You're just fine. Don't worry. So I know you as composer, as director of music, as uh, of a, a wonderful uh, and uh, serious uh, music program here in in the United States, in uh, predominantly in the Novus Ordo uh, context. So can you talk to us about your music ministry at Holy Cross and what that looks like? Sure. Um, I started here almost five years ago. I started on the Feast of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross, which is September 14th, um, which is very apropos, and I was blessed to do that. Uh, I spent about 30 years, almost 30 years in parishes, actually more than 30 years in parishes prior to that. So I think that's very key to entering into uh, an archdiocesan level to be among the people for a long time, really knowing what the struggles are and what the challenges are in the parishes. Because part of my job as Archdiocesan Music Director is also to be in support, um, to assist and, you know, uh, really have a sense of it. And and also it helps give a sense of the people. Um, I can't underscore that enough. (laughs) But here at the cathedral, it's also a parish. So that's really cool. And we have quite a diverse parish. So I... We have, of course, the Novus Ordo Mass in English. Of course, we're singing in many languages, uh, in Latin, Greek, and whatever else happens to come up that day, you know. <laughs> um, there, this The cathedral parish has is very interesting in that there are four languages, Mass celebrated in four languages, in three different rites, all in union with the church. So there's also the traditional Latin Mass. Uh, I have some involvement with that occasionally. I'm not directing that, but that community dates back to uh, the time of John Paul II, Pope St. John Paul II, Yes. Uh, when there were very specific, you had to have very specific permission to do that Mass. That continues on here. There's also the uh, Gies Rite, which is an Easter, Eastern Rite with the Ethiopian community, and also, of course, the Spanish Mass. We also have uh, some bilingual Masses at, at uh, pertinent times as well. Wonderful. So it's a, it's a broad city. So, you know, anytime you can do mass, I remember Ascension Thursday, we literally had three masses going on at one time. Uh, and part of that was Boston on college high school came in, DCI came in to do something. And, 
and there's the lab mass going on downstairs, another mass going on in the Blessed Sacrament Chapel, the high school mass going on in the main cathedral. So it's like a small city here uh, in the parish setting. It's and it's fascinating and it's a joy to be around. Wonderful, wonderful. And so you're you're an organist. You are the choir, the choir director, the director of the mm-hmm. cathedral music program. I know you also compose and you have a new uh, a relatively new album out with a colleague, right, with the trumpet work with Richard Kelly. Yes. yes. Uh, Fearfully and wonderfully made the uh, the title tracks on that is from a four movement suite. Uh, which is meditates on Psalm 139, various specific parts of Psalm 139, all instrumental. Richard Kelly's amazing, plays with the Boston Pops, and he's been a soloist as well with them and Boston Symphony, um, and teaches at conservatories around here. He's a phenomenal teacher, great, beautiful human being, and it comes out in his playing. He's the perfect guy. I've written a lot of music based on scripture for him, including another requiem based on the Gregorian chants of... Uh, of the Requiem Mass, which you wouldn't think of for trumpet, you know, but right. he does it. He does it. So, so that album is called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. It's on, it's on everything, iTunes, uh, Amazon, whatever, Spotify. I'm, so. I'm plugging it specifically, not, not only because I have downloaded it myself. I have a trumpet player. I have a trumpet player in my house. Yeah. Uh, my daughter. Oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. My daughter, my daughter's the brass captain. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm seeing you today having mm. set up for uh, band camp this morning. So, you know, <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> right Fantastic. Um, so I'm we're here today because uh, in addition to all of these other hats that you wear, you also have written and spoken specifically about some of the more recent documents that have come out from uh, Pope Francis Desiderio Desideravi and how the liturgy and and the singing in liturgy is is really important. And I kind of wanted to dig into that with you today. And how you see maybe music as evangelizing, or how that how that all fits into the creating creating deeper discipleship in our people. If that's all right, uh, oh, <laughs> just a slightly broad topic. What a great, great, great topic. We we could talk for hours about this. How long does everybody have? Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> it's it's so amazing. And something that I, as you dig more into everything, the more I appreciate uh, how music and evangelization and the Eucharist and community are all tied together. They're all unified. Uh, You know, Pope Francis uh, is is such a gift for articulating ideas with an economy of words where he says that liturgy is the first teacher of catechism. The liturgy itself has to evangelize. Pope John Paul II said exactly the same thing. The, The liturgy has to evangelize uh, if it's not, we're, we're having some problems. Music, in terms of singing, uh, to give another one example, um, very often I might receive a well-intended compliment that the music is a lovely addition to the Mass. Oh, thank you. It's a great addition to the Mass. And I say thank you. But the, the important is music is intrinsic to the Mass. And, I mean, this dates back to the singing of the Torah. You know, the, you know Ezra brought back the singing of the Torah after the Babylonian exile. We're talking many thousands of years. You go to the the, you walk into this building and you go to the traditional Latin mass or the geese right. It's constant singing. The mass is sung. The the high mass definition of a high mass is not fancy music, choirs, brass, organ, all that. It actually has nothing to do with that. It actually has to do with any prayer that is spoken out loud is sung 
by the celebrant. And of course, it goes on from there. You've ha you have various roles of the scola and on and on. And even with the Novus Ordo, uh, we have the idea of progressive solemnity, where we're not really actually deciding what music to add, we're deciding what music to remove. <laughs> you can sing everything. Uh, you've been involved with Puri Cantores. Um, you've been a big supporter of them, which is... Uh, which literally means boy choirs, but children singing, it's children's choirs, and that role is to evangelize through sacred music among children. It's a phenomenal program all over, national program all over the country. Uh, Bishop Reed has been great to celebrate here, and he sings everything, everything is sung. Uh, he even sang the Confidior, <laughs> uh, which which was great, which is actually yeah. not set in the Roman Missal, but... Um, Recto tono, which is one one note. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, Creator of Heaven and Earth, etc. And you can sing it in a lower tone. So it's a great example. Um, so different seasons, different times, different masses. Uh, there are certain priorities of what we sing, and the priorities may be surprising uh, to you know the church documents. The things that are most important are the things sung by the priest and in dialogues, dialogues and acclamations. So. Uh, you know, for example, the Lord be with you and with your spirit, lift up your hearts, etc. Right. That's actually really important. And that helps actually energize everybody when the priest sings something, even if it's on one note, even if it's not great. We've gotten into such a performance-oriented mentality. It's a very much a 20th century, 21st century mentality, especially now with the live streams. It's really <laughs> that much more that this isn't about performance. It's about prayer. Now the choir, the choir, and the musicians—they got to perform. You know, yes. they got in the fact that they have to bring their best to God and be of support and and help transcend. But um, we're here to sing. Singing is, you know, when Saint Augustine, uh, whether he actually said or not, he who sings once prays twice. Whoever actually made that up, whether it was him or not, it was the most genius thing ever said in the last couple of thousand years. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, and he does say that he uh, singing is for the one who loves. Right. Uh, which is just just so incredible. Yeah, so absolutely. loves loving and evangelization. And, you know, I've talked to folks, evangelization very much is often that one on one uh, connection and yeah. music, singing, singing the scriptures is is evangelization. And what we sing is really important. The theology of what we sing is important. Uh, singing the antiphons of the mass, which is singing scripture is incredibly important. There's a lot of new settings that are in English that are very accessible. Uh, I always take a both end approach, which is never really just sing one or the other. If you're singing, um, singing chants, then you can't sing hymns. You got to give people, uh, got to give people both. And, yeah. uh, Give, give them, you know, any given mass here, even during the summer, we'll sing the intro uh, from the Graduale Romanum. That's be in Latin. We sing other uh, antiphons in English, uh, but we'll also sing a hymn as yes. well. A nice, robust, familiar hymn that everybody can dig into. Absolutely. Absolutely. I really like that both. And um, and especially when you say singing is uh, belongs to he who loves um, and tie that to the evangelization of the one-on-one. -on -one. You know, we forget so many times that, um, you know, in order for us to grow in, you know, our discipleship, our journey with the Lord, it really is a personal thing. But as Catholics, we're asked to continuously be in communion with one another to pull ourselves no. out of ourselves. And then also to pull ourselves mm. further into community where we, we, we offer ourselves as Jesus did to each other. Right. And so like oh, that, that sacrifice of praise is really the important, you know, in a context of a community is really 
uh, very important as I, I mean, I've been a cantor since I was 13 years old and I could out sing most of the ladies in the choir loft. My pastor just told me, get up there. You're, you can get up at yeah. seven 30 and do this. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a, there's that, um, opportunity of leading, but there's also the opportunity, the, the mission of like, well, this is the gift you have as a, as a loud voice or, or whatever you can, you can do this, but it's also much more about, having the strength to kind of like say, okay, everybody like, you know, let's do this all together, you know, and really putting yourself and all of that performance, uh, I don't know, ego of sorts really to the service mm. of the community. It's those gifts that are in service of community. Uh, amen. I'm, I'm just, I'm in the amen corner over here. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. That is just fantastic. Everything you're saying. Um, it is so unified. I mean, music is interesting because on the one hand, it's deeply personal. And then on the other hand, in church, we do something a little different. It's communal. It's it's uh, you know to use the sort of drier word, corporate worship. Right. But India, that's sort of a sort of a dry word. But it's we're doing it together. So on the one hand, um, we have to learn how to be in community with each other. When Saint Augustine says, "Singing is for the one who loves," he's he did he wrote that in context of a letter, uh, excuse me, a homily about the dedication of a church. Yeah. Which is fascinating because yeah. the dedication of the church said we have to be one in charity with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to say that, you know, uh, there's a great book by Robert Fulgham uh, in 1988 or so. Um, Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. It was a New York Times bestseller. And I think the Roman Catholic version of that is Everything I Needed to Know I Learned from Ubi Caritas. Right. <laughs> uh, which is, you know, where, where there is God, where there is charity, where there's love. Where there's charity and love, God is there. And mm-hmm. the second line, Congregavit nos unum Christi amor, together we are united in the love of Christ. And it goes on that uh, there's a great, there's a great wonderful translation where charity and love prevail that is very familiar to folks dating back to the early 60s. It's really maintained. Um, let strife among us be unknown, let all contention cease, be God's the glory that we seek, be ours his holy peace. Yep. And we learn how to be together in community. Uh and and there's something energizing um, and loving. There's tremendous love in that. I find when people are this is important. People in the pews when people are singing. I've been to mass where occasionally I get to be in the pews, and I'm not in control of the music, you know. And my wife's telling me, "Hey, just keep don't say anything, okay?" That's right. And then there's a, this kid singing next to me who just doesn't even know he's singing, and he's singing along, and it's the and like he's evangelizing to me. Right. I'm like wow, this is powerful. Powerful yeah. experience to be around that. You have no idea who you're going to affect and impact. Yeah. You know, uh, whether if you're singing a hymn in the pews, if you are in a choir, if whatever your role is, um, part of the role of the choir is actually specifically to sing with the, with the congregation, not just support it, but at certain times you're singing with them. And sometimes to sing alone where, you know, full participation is also internal, not just external, right. uh, and also to embellish. So, it's um, you never know who you're going to touch that day. You don't know. I try to remind my choirs. You never know what burdens, griefs, and joys people walk are carrying. What burdens they're carrying when they walk through the doors of your church. Right. You just don't know. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you learn. You learn later on if you get to learn to know someone. And you're like, wow, that's okay. Gives a bigger picture, and the appreciation gets that much more. But you might not ever know. So. Yeah. You always give your best to God and a gift. You may not know, but if you're singing in the pews, sing out. It doesn't have to be great. You're, you're helping evangelize to somebody else. You're, you're giving comfort 
and support to somebody else around you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. um, that's that's something that's so important. You know, we you said about the performance culture, and so many times people come up to me and say, "Oh, I'm I would join, but I'm not a good singer." It's like that doesn't matter. You know, mm-hmm. I yeah. really that's the last. I I always say. I can teach anybody to sing. And that's not me being like some grandiose teacher. Like it's really just mm-hmm. about standing up straight and using your breath. And it, if you've, if you're yeah. singing, it doesn't <laughs> like, and that's all God wants of us, right? Like that all he wants is us to stand up straight and use our breath for his. That, his that is fantastic. I'm right? going to steal that. I got to steal that one. That's a good one. Yeah. That like, is great. Everybody can use it. So, but like, um, I just, I'm so you know, like convicted that this is what this is, this is all it is, right? And we we just use our gifts in different ways. But um, something you said about that love and, and the Ubi Caritas, you know, um, and Eucharist and, you know, you're, uh, you're at the Holy Cross, I have a, a, a deep devotion from my, just my former parish to the Sacred Heart. And that Ubi Caritas was was kind of like our, mm. our theme of our choir, right? That, that where is the charity? Where is that well of charity coming from? Where do we where do we start as a community? And and how do we do mission of community? I mean, that, that Ubi Caritas is just that text is so fundamental to who we are as as missionaries, as and and in whatever role we're we're serving, whether it's in ministry or or whether it's in social justice or whether wherever we're going with our our gifts, that like I'm I'm giving everything that I have to my community for God. You know, that's anyway. Absolutely, I just, yeah. that's inspiring. Yeah, Eric, thank you. That that is so inspiring. It's so right. true. And another thing I picked up on the you you know you used Psalm one thirty nine, which is offline i'll tell you but that is mm. one of my personal favorite psalms i actually have fearfully and wonderfully made in my bedroom on on a, oh, on, a on a plaque but yeah. um but the the use of the psalms is so important because you know there's 150 psalms but one third of them are sorrowful and two thirds are praise we always have like when we use those propers of the mass they're fundamentally the psalms and yes absolutely. yeah that's a big deal yes and and we are you know and, and as a cantor i've spent my entire life in you know offering the psalms as a psalmist at at, at the ambo and so when when we re, we dig into those opportunities to just give the words of scripture that the magisterium that the church in her wisdom of 2000 years has really just offered us to give back to the people it's the words of god for where the whole church is it's not just about like me as minister you know what's my favorite hymn or what father likes to walk down the aisle to or what's you know what's going to cover this action mm-hmm. but it really when we insert those um psalms as as the introit or the or the offertory or the communion right before we're giving the people back their heritage we're giving them exactly what the church has said is for exactly this moment, you know, to help them draw the connections that the Holy Spirit can only draw in their lives. Yeah. Uh, again, the amen, amen corner over here. Cathedral uh, <laughs> is, is, is really uh, so inspired by everything you're saying. It's, it's so true. Um, the Psalms are big or enormous part, whether they are the antiphon themselves and or the verses. So very often, uh, interestingly, most of the time what we encounter as a psalm at Mass is the responsorial, which is after the first reading. Now, that's a new genre in the Novus Ordo Mass. You have the gradual is just a short, maybe one or two 
part sentences from scripture, which was wonderful. Uh, the responsorial psalm uh, added the, the short antiphon for the people. And you get a few, maybe three or four verses from the book of Psalms. The Psalms appear also in all, as you have just said, they appear in all the all the antiphons, the entrance antiphon, the, the offertory antiphon, the communion antiphon. And what's fascinating, one of the things that's a great example is the communion antiphon on Palm Sunday. And the antiphon itself is uh, father of this cup shall pass uh, without me drinking it, thy will be done. I think that's not the I almost got it right. You can look it up in the Roman Missal. It's right there in the Roman <laughs> Missal. But it's from Scripture. It's a very, very familiar Scripture. But the verses are all from Psalm 22. And we're familiar with Psalm 22 because we just sang it at the responsorial, but you only got a little bit of it. Right. If you look at the entire Psalm and you actually sing this through, it begins with the words we're familiar with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, I am a do- I am a worm, but not a man. The dogs surround me, et cetera. All of these things that, that we relate with the passion and crucifixion. Right. Then it, then it, you get to verse, you get later on in, in Psalm 22 and it starts getting into, we will praise you. It turns into a Psalm of praise. Yes. And our family of generations, uh, generations will continue to praise you. I'm paraphrasing here, but it, it ends really with the, our generations to come will praise you. Yes. Well, what's going on here? Now, when Jesus was on the cross and he said, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't just saying that first line. He may have been invoking that entire Psalm. Yes. There's the suffering but it ends in salvation. Right. And that's what blows my mind and why I love this and why the connection of these things. And this happens all over the place throughout the liturgy. So when you're singing the Psalms, you can actually be singing them throughout much of the liturgy. One of the best cases for it, there's a woman who said to me after Mass, but doesn't know or care anything about the general instruction of the Roman Missal or (laughs) whether she's read through the Constitution of the Sacred Liturgy or or anything else. But we were singing an English setting of the communion antiphon, and which, by the way, those antiphons often point back to the gospel, especially during Advent, Lent, Easter, et cetera, you know, in those seasons. <clears throat> and she said, isn't it wonderful that we're singing the scriptures while receiving the Eucharist? Yeah. And she had to tell me that, and this connected with her, so that the scripture, the word, you know, God is present to us in multiple ways. God's present not just in the Eucharist, it's present in the Word. Now you combine the two of those, singing and receiving the Eucharist. Now look at the genius of that phrase, he who sings once prays twice. Right. Um, you know, God is present in, in the sacraments. God is present when uh, two or three are gathered in your name and pray and sing. And the Constitution of the, of the Savior Liturgy includes the phrase and sing. It didn't have to. It, could, it would have been just fine on its own. Two or three gathered in my name who come together, pray and saying, God is present. Right. Uh, and that to me is mind blowing. And that points right there to community, the Eucharist, the sacraments, singing, all unified together, all there to put to light everybody's faith on fire and be of, of assistance and comfort, not only to ourselves, but to all those around us. Absolutely. And for each other and for one another. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, growing up, some of the, some of the uh, most important times of my foundation was, you know, I was born in the late seventies, uh, but you know, most of my eighties, you know, nineteen eighties music was of a certain type in the Novus mm-hmm. Ordo. Sure. Um, but um, the times when we sang, uh, things that felt 
more connected to scripture though you know you you mentioned before where charity and love prevail you know that that was a him that was something that was around but i remember singing that and it was it's one of the songs that stayed with me because it was really grounded in something bigger than um some of the more uh contemporary pieces that are not scripturally based don't have that same connection for me because they don't they kind of they're with me right now but they don't carry me through you know that scriptural Mm -hmm. context really brings us like the through line throughout the seasons of our life you know i always you mentioned i i I work with children's choirs i've worked with children's choirs for a long time and i always remember when i was a young a a young 20 something and i'd move to a new city or and i'd take the wrong bus or i'd get off on the wrong subway line or something and i just was in the wrong place at the wrong time and there were certain hymns that popped up in my brain at to sing as as a as a get me all right god i got myself into this mess get me out of this mess right (laughs) and so i always i always think that like my part of my job is to give the kids um, in my children's choir, those words that are going to like come back to them if they're if they've made a bad mistake and they know that God still loves them, but they're just like, okay, God, get hmm. me out of this, get me out of this, Jesus, you know. And it's yeah. it's it's got to be like a you know, um, how many times have I sing, dear Lord and Father of mankind, forgive our foolish ways, right? Like <laughs> those words have to come back out of my mouth. I've been really dumb here. Get yeah. me out of this. So yeah. I think I think sometimes when things are really have a t- more like a, a timeless text and and only only the word only the eternal word is ever eternal right like only word God's word is ever um, it's ever present ever new it's it, o- it's only yeah. ever going to be the thing that is the through line of our lives. It always nourishes and sustains us. Um... You know, I, I was born in 1969. You could do the math. Uh, so, so I, that's the year the Novus Ordo was promulgated by Pope Paul VI, Pope Saint yes. Paul VI. Yes. So I, I sort of take it personally. I say, you want to know how old the Novus Ordo is? Uh, you're looking at it. So, <laughs> so you know, and and so when I was a kid, I grew, grew up with a lot of a lot of interesting um, permutations and experimentations. In, in hindsight, I realized my parish was doing a very good job far better than most. Uh, they're doing the best they can. They had challenges I was not aware of. And, you know, I think some of the early writers, that, that you know, there were a lot of experimentations. You had really the lone character of Theodore Marier here in, in New England who continued that continuity of, okay, we need settings in English. We need them yesterday. Yes. And he continued to compose in the style of Gregorian chant. Um but in English settings and things that were accessible and singable. His, his, the parish of St. Paul's in Cambridge was unusual that it was really promoting congregational singing back in the 40s and 50s, which was what Pius XI and Pius XII were, were pushing. And they were they got a head start by a few decades. You know, other parishes didn't catch up till 70s and 80s and 90s. Um, other f- folks, I mean, the St. Louis Jesuits, for example, uh, a, a lot of, they had the right idea in a number of places where the style was entirely different, but they continued to write based on scripture. Right. Um, some of them did. There, and, and a lot of that was very scripturally based. You know, Michael Jonkis, uh, early on, always had a wonderful, fantastic respect for the text, even, you know, before certain, you know, now if you're writing a responsorial psalm text, uh, you really have to stick 
with the approved text. Uh, and, yeah. and years ago, you could paraphrase it. And he would stay with it. He would always make sure he wrote music that accommodated the text. The text drove his music. So there were different styles and people who continued that thread. And you, you'd have to be careful with uh, with theology in particular. Um, and Eucharistic theology is, is probably the most important of that. Uh, not everybody can be Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> and so... <laughs> I like to say that Tommy Aquinas writes great lyrics. Yes, and yes. you know, but uh, that's that's very important. And uh, some you know some hymnals are better than others at it. Uh, so that pastors uh, I think need to to be involved and to help guide along with musicians and and taking a clear look at theology that we sing because what we sing shapes who we are. You know, yes. there's the Lex orandi, lex, lex credendi, lex vivendi. How we pray leads to what we believe, which therefore leads to how we we live out our lives. Absolutely. Um, and so, music's right, right in there. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right in there. When we talk about music for discipleship, or or um, we sometimes talk about these personal types of prayer, this personal relationship, and then you get to really the the idea of the music for the liturgy for the worship. What is the words or the music or how how you get to where uh, you choose stuff for your congregation? Yeah, uh, such a great, great question and so important. And the church has been addressing this for a while, you know, in the midst of of Vatican II, um, or just coming out of it, 1965, the U.S. bishops put together a committee of folks uh, to try to figure out how do we how do we implement this and what do you do and one of the things that grew out of that in the early seventies was music and Catholic worship, which was a guideline which uh, then came you know other editions in the eighties and then uh, more recently two thousand seven the latest edition of that is sing to the Lord music in divine worship right and sing sing to the Lord music in divine worship is a very important document even though it doesn't have the the level of liturgical law such as the general instruction of the Roman Missal, et cetera, it, it's still really important because if it's in there, uh, it also, actually, a lot of it's just quoting the general instruction of the Roman Missal. So that is, that's important. The cornerstone of the document that came out of, that was born out of Vatican II in the 60s when the USCCB first got into it, were the three judgments. Right. Uh, three judgments, really, it's three judgments, one decision. So it's another form of the Trinity. It's a musical Trinity. Uh, and it's it's just fantastic advice. It's just, in some ways, it's common sense. So in whatever order you may put them in, I think different editions put them in different order, and it's okay. But uh, certainly there's there's a musical judgment, which is, you know, is it good music? Is it beautiful? Uh, is it worthy of the celebration musically? Does it carry the weight of the liturgical action and the celebration? Um, there's a pastoral judgment which could change and vary depending on your congregation, depending on your parish. If you're a new pastor or if you're a new music director taking a new job, one of the most important things you got to do is find out the history. What's been going on in this parish? What's What have they been accustomed to? What have they been used to? If you want to get it to a different place, don't start there right away. You got to make a pastoral judgment to have some continuity and, and have ways to do that. That's one example. But uh, the pastoral judgment can cover a lot of things. And also, but really more importantly, too, is, is it going to draw people closer to God and to the mystery? Going back to Pius X in 1903, he's the one who really kicked off Vatican II. He's, yeah. the, catal he's the catalyst, right? So his instruction on sacred music in 1903 talks about music needs to be sacred, beautiful, 
and universal. And this also really comes out of that. And and it's a pastoral judgment. Is the music going to, to uh, as he would put it, to sanctify the people to glorify God? Will it glorify God, sanctify the people? So yeah. in other words, it may not be your own personal thoughts and impressions. Right. As together as a community, does this sanctify each other and ourselves? Does it glorify God? Together as a group, think of it, you've got a few hundred people maybe in a, in a beautiful way singing together in one voice glorifying God. There's, it's an incredibly beautiful thing. Uh, and then there's, of course, the liturgical judgment, which uh, is going to be specific to to the liturgical action. For example, an obvious one would be the responsorial psalm. Is it that you're actually singing, you can't throw in a hymn or you can't throw in your favorite piece of music in that slot, for example, the glory it has to be the glory. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, some of those are, are obvious and straightforward, but uh, does it match the ritual action? Sometimes, you know, you might hear a piece of music that, you know, it seems a little out of sync with the liturgical action. You may want to take a look at that, you know. And it's not really a stylistic thing. I mean, I've I've been involved in uh, parishes that, you know, even their history and what, what was a good pastoral judgment, you know, in one decade was not in the next decade and not yep. in the next decade. I, you know, I was in a parish for almost 30 years. Right. <laughs> so, and, and there were parishes that closed and they came aboard and there were all kinds of changes. And, you know, you had a change involved along with it. I've had involvement in a lot of different styles of music. I may be known as organist, love Gregorian chant, polyphony, classical stuff, things, things that you can cherry pick from the internet about me. But um, I went to the Berkeley College of Music. I thought I was going to rock out for a long time. I was a songwriter. So I have a lot of respect for good songwriting. Yeah. A lot of respect for it because it's not easy. A lot of people think, oh, it's easy to write a guitar mask. No, it's not. No. Yeah. It's really, there's a whole nother level to that. So, uh, you know, very successful uh, hybrid programs that, you know, we pick the best of the best. And in terms of musically, in terms of the theology, in terms of the liturgical action, and everybody had to be on board and everyone had to be okay with it. It was actually, I think, earned a lot of respect because you were able to, to choose from all of these things, and also address the pastoral issue of a very diverse community. But everything was done through the prism of reverence. Reverence is a big word. Reverence comes up a lot in Sync to the Lord, Music and Divine Worship, comes up in a lot of places. Everything is directed from from ourselves, outside of ourselves, you know, subjugate the the ego. Right. And towards God, Uh, especially, you know, there may be a piece of music that uh, may not be my favorite piece. It's not about what's my favorite piece, not about what the pastor's favorite piece is or whomever, you know, or any individual member of the choir. I hate that. Well, here you go. We're going to work on this now. Yeah. So, yeah, liturgical, pastoral and musical judgments. And all three of those have to come together. And, you know, and that and that's going to vary, you know, like a cathedral has a different charism than other parishes and depending on the mass and certain parishes have particular things that they do well in in the case where i can model the the traditions of the church i'm able to do that not just because i'm in a cathedral but because we have the the support to do it it can be done in other parishes and should be uh really a lot of musicians over the last 15 almost 20 years now have been developing very accessible settings of Gregorian chant-based music uh, in English that are very accessible yeah. and reverent. And, and so the theology, theology matters. You got to be careful, look at your hymnal, got to make sure the theology is good. Now, that's a whole other topic that yeah. I can get into <laughs> about that. The editors, the editors need to be on top of it. I know some fantastic, wonderful editors who really done some great work. In that Absolutely. Area. Yeah. 
word gets out either through the USCCB, they make recommendations and things get, lyrics eventually get conformed more towards the good theology, Mm -hmm. even if they have hiccups along the way. But I think that one other thing that you said, though, going back is, is that it has to be musically beautiful, right? And that's an interesting concept to me, too, because, you know, I've been in the music business for a long time. Um, And so, you know, when people say, well, you know, how do you, you know, oh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And really, that's such a 20th century concept. Before that, we really Mm -hmm. understood that there was just as there's absolute truth and absolute goodness, and God is both, that there's also a beautiful, an idea of a more of archetype for beauty. And that can vary depending on the culture and the and the people, but it still has to be a sense of authenticity. And it also has to be a sense of that reverence that uh, sing to the Lord brings in, but it also has to have almost like we spoke before about this timeless quality that it's not just subject to the narrow set of whims of the of the current age, right? It's got a little bit more timelessness. So when when people talk to me about it and I say, you know, You can walk into the Vatican and look around St. Peter's and you can say, with your knowledge, this is beautiful, even if it's not the style that you would want for your living room, right? Like, it's not comfortable. It's not something. Yeah, yeah, right. And it might not even be the style that is your your contemporary worship space or your church, wherever your parish is worshiping, but it has a timeless aspect of beauty that captures a notion of of something greater than ourselves. And really that's that's that timelessness that we're mm. trying to put into words when we talk about musical beauty too, I think. That's so well put. Everything is so well said, so important. Uh yeah, I mean on the one hand we we certainly have our personal tastes and personal thoughts to it there are there are forms you know just like in architecture yeah there are some classic forms in art there are classic forms and then there are those who break those forms and sort of show us a new potentially classic form too right. uh and uh, you know for example i'd like say the french are never afraid of putting something absolutely avant-garde next to something new and people get all upset and crazy about it and then they can't live without it look at the louvre you know those (laughs) triangular entrances now you can't live without it um something brand new but uh you know Pius the 10th and all the way through you know of course uh popes since have always talked about music that is new new composition is always very important new composers are very important and that such music is modeled on gregorian chant is the classical ideal and scripture, by the way, that's a given. And, and I mean, it it absolutely, the constitution of the sacred liturgy is very clear that the sacred music must be drawn chiefly from scripture. Yeah. And that's that's incredibly important. We got to get back to that. So, and we are, <laughs> we are. But it's a fascinating, fascinating thing to look at. So, you know, we have to balance, you know, where we're at personally and be open to to new new ideas and to new things. You know, I can hear a piece of music that may not be the style that I like, but boy, you know, someone with a gift within and it's filtered through reverence, it's coming through in their heart and they're singing scriptures, they're singing the word of God that has a universality to it. Right. That yeah. has universality to it. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What do you think about Pope Francis and this Desiderio Desideravi? What do we what do we think about it? Well, I, what do you think? I don't know if you're talking to the right person in terms of I'm still absorbing it. Right. I got right. I gotta keep reading it. It's so amazing. Yeah. It's it's absolutely spellbounding because there are so many individual gems in it. I, I find that I can I can sort of um meditate on any particular uh, paragraph. I mean, mm-hmm. a good deal of it. I mean, uh, you know, his writing style in in that case, the intent certainly is to. He is jumping around in different topics, and I think the main one of the main themes is to recapture our literacy of symbols in the yes. liturgy, being yes. liturgical. Uh, that symbolism. If you need to explain it, something's not quite right. Or if you some, the, the liturgy, the action itself, take a baptism, for example, the, the water or the anointing of oils is very powerful. Uh, you know, having four kids myself, and I think one of the most powerful moments that struck me is, is the word, I claim you for Christ. Mm-hmm. And it just, just knocked me over, you know. It's, it was just a fantastic moment. Heard it four times, but that's something that's very powerful. So... Um, the symbols and our environment. And of course, there's more to it than that, but he also addresses liturgical style that there's could be problems on either end. If you, if someone makes celebrants and and musicians have a lot of power in in the tone of a liturgy and for, for good or for bad and in, in any direction, one way or the other, uh, if, if it's made too personal or too much of one's own particular preferences one gets away from our the purpose, which is to glorify God and sanctify the people. Right. Which and that sounds a little dry too, but honestly, really meditate on it. That's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's some amazing spots from Desiderio Desideravi, and and particularly we're relational. We're talking about the Eucharist, and we have the USCCB Eucharistic Revival. And I always got to remind music is really entirely connected with the Eucharist. And not everybody makes that connection right away. It's really got to be. But, uh, you know, he says in Desiderio Desideravi, there is no aspect of ecclesial life that does not find its summit and its source in the liturgy. And of course, he's quoting uh, Lumen Gentium or evoking Lumen Gentium from Vatican II, where it says, taking part of the Eucharistic sacrifice, which is the font and apex of the whole Christian life, right? which we also call source and summit, that it touches every aspect Eucharist touches every aspect of yeah. everything we're doing. You know, he also says uh, we would have no other possibility of a true encounter with him other than that of the community that celebrates. So you got to have the community to have mass, you know. Yeah. And Pope Gregory said this centuries ago, more than a millennia ago. You need to have people to have mass. You know, the community is intrinsic. The Eucharist is intrinsic. The word. And we're singing the word. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm in agreement with you about all of that. I and especially about that um, you know, symbolically illiterate part of our current societal culture. You know, Pope Francis says a symbolic reading is not a mental knowledge and not the acquisition of concepts, but rather a mm-hmm. living experience. And it, you know, it strikes me that what we're talking about here is really intrinsic to the idea of what a mystery is and what, how we process it, but also that sense of awe that we've lost. We've lost this sense of wonder 
and mystery because we've become such a a scientifically bound society or a materialistic that everything has a purpose and it's everything's explainable and if it's not explainable it can't possibly be true yeah. right and, <laughs> that's the truth right For sure. and, we, and and right there in the creed as catholics we say uh, you know the, the god of the visible and the invisible mm, like, yeah we, mm-hmm. we, we really say that like that is a thing that is, yeah that, that's very very different from seen and unseen right there, that was very specific Yes. And, you know, of course, not only being a more literal translation. Yeah. Yeah. But it, those are that, that quality of awe to be, to be taken out of ourselves and the bound by the, the definable and allowed to have these uh, opportunities for being washed away in beauty or being, uh, you know, kind of filled to the brim with truth or, or these, these uh, kind of deep, spiritual we call them the spiritual like like a charismatic or spirit you they talk about it a lot in the charismatic movement that spiritual mm-hmm. overwhelm like overflowing um and and in especially the grace of baptism that is really you know you know when you look at it, your child i've i have two kids you love them more than you can even words can even put into and that's uh, that's absolutely and that's just a pale glimpse of God's love. And so of mm-hmm. course we want our liturgy to express that abundance, that that you know, inexpressible abundance of love. It's a foretaste of heaven. Amen. Indeed, as is the Eucharist. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the litur- the liturgy of the mass and cannot be emphasized enough, is our greatest prayer. Mm-hmm. It's our greatest prayer. It's such a gem, and I think it's something it's a love that my parents uh imparted to me. Uh, my mother would always say, you know, we have this gem, our faith. Mm-hmm. And and that really st- stuck with me. Uh, in some cases, a very religious upbringing. Could, some people, you know, they rebel against it or whatever. But what, what stuck, always stuck with me is that love of the prayer, love of the mass, love of the Eucharist. And that we, we ha- we're very lucky. We're very fortunate to have this. Yeah. To have this gem. That is, we have devotions to Mary. We have the uh, the communion of saints. We have the intercession uh, of the saints. I, you know, I joke with my kids. I said, you know why it's important to pray to Mary? Because you know, you know, you have to do what your mother says, right? right. You pray to Mary. Even Jesus had to do what his mother says, right? <laughs> look, look no further than the wedding feast of Cana. He didn't want to do it. He's like, Mom, I don't, want, I don't want to do this miracle. Come on, not, not now. He's like, do what he says. Yeah. Do whatever he says. Yeah. So. I know I'm getting a little off topic, but um, we're very we're very lucky to have that. And the mass is everything flows for mass. The rest of the week, you know, go and glorify the Lord by your lives is mm-hmm. is probably uh, one of the most beautiful uh, dismissals from from the mass. Yeah, and because that continues, the Paschal liturgy does not end with the last hymn. Right, we continue on. And even other aspects of adoration exposition, they flow out of mass and they flow mm-hmm. back into mass. Yeah. You know, the host that is consecrated at mass is what is put in the monstrance. You, you don't have that without mass and it, and it's all, it's all unified together. So, Absolutely. you know, we're, we're deeply blessed to have that and look at it and take a look at it and how we celebrate, you know, we need to get away from the entertainment culture. Right. Uh, or the thought that um, the words of the mass are very powerful and, and, and I, I think, you know, we sort of, the thought that we may need to entertain or snap people, keep them awake with something else, something other than, um, I, I think it's really important that our kids get to learn the rhythms of the mass, get to learn the words of the mass. I had that, uh, 
I'd had that experience in the 1970s. I, I was spared a lot of experimentation <laughs> in the 70s. Uh, but you learn the words of the Mass. And interestingly, you know, English, the, the church has really relied on English. Some people may have issues with the translation or or say, you know, gee, the word order is really, really strict. Uh, it is it is a, a fact that English was very strict with the new translation because there are so many other countries that do not have the scholars to translate from Latin. Right. So they're translating from English. Right. They do have that. And that's one of the reasons there was, there was not a lot of flexibility there. You know, the bishops went back and forth. They maybe wanted to do uh, one of being with the father and Vox Clare would say, it will be consubstantial with the father, right. <laughs> you know, and, and, but, you know, we're learning, not only we're learning some new SAT words, but we're also, that does have a carry a certain weight to it. Yeah. Of the same substance. We believe in transubstantiation. No longer the same substance. Right. It's not. It has the appearance of bread, not bread. Be careful of, of the hymns you're singing. Be careful yes. of hymns that have consubstantiation. It is not the same substance. But Jesus and the Father are the same substance, of course. So that's why, we, you know, this is one, one of the examples there. Uh, yeah. So it's it's fun. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a fun thing. Yeah. And, okay. Okay. Yeah. So. I'm going to put you on the spot. Yeah. I, I know that uh, I think on Facebook about a year and a half ago, you and I had mm. a little bit of back and forth about what I think you posted, like, what is your favorite Eucharistic hymn? And of course I came out with Adoro Te Devote because that's, that's a great one. Yeah. That's my, that's my big number one. That's great. Um, but uh, what are other, let, let's just throw down, like, give me your top four or five favorite Eucharistic oh, hymns. Well, that's that's one of them right there. Um, uh, you know, Ave Verum Corpus has so many so many great musical settings to it. Yeah. Andre Lingua, again, Sacri Solemnis is one that's not looked at very often. Right. Um, my friend Alan Homerding has just done a new translation of that that I want yep. to dig into. Okay. Cool. They're all so rich in theology. Of course, you're noticing the the you know the Thomas Aquinas. Um, yeah, I was going to say Tommy A. Right there. Adoro te devote is, is wonderful, and then of course you know other ones in English. You know such uh, you know Jesus, my Lord, my God, my all, sweet sacrament. Yeah, uh, is so so accessible, and there's an internal. It, it sort of transcends the text itself. I think that's that's few, but also you know there's a there's a few of the the antiphons, and one that comes up you know. That's um, whoever eats this bread and drinks this blood will have eternal life. And mm-hmm. I, th- I think in the Roman Missal, I think that's coming up this Sunday. And that, of course, is in uh, Corpus Christi as well in the Novus Ordo. So mm-hmm. you, if you have a if you have a copy of Breaking Bread, and even those are going to have the communion antiphons in there. Yep. Take a, yep. take a look at them. They're inspiring. There's two of them. There's two of them during ordinary time. There's an option. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that that answers some of it. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. I, I wish Sweet Sacrament was in more hymnals. Um, it's It's been kind of relegated to the... Uh, and it seems, it's, some people say, oh, gee, you know, you've gone back to the 1950s, you know? <laughs> like, well, I mean, the thing about hymns and what's interesting is that, you know, there really was no golden era. Every every age had to go through good hymns and bad hymns, good yes. songs, bad songs. And you've got to vet those. And uh, some older hymnals have the advantage of, of a few hundred years of hindsight and saying, okay, we've been through that. But you pick up a Roman Catholic hymnal from, you know, depending on the 1930s, 40s, 50s, depending on who the editor was. And there's, there's some schmaltz in there that don't necessarily appear later on. And there may be things that are, and of course, there's also things, hymns that are better for devotion, yeah. uh, depending on, on what's going on at Mass. 
there really is no clear delineage. You can sing either in either case, you know, right. the, Absolutely. The, vetting a lot of music, any, any, my colleagues who may disparage entire genres of music and say it's all tawdry. It's well, you haven't examined it closely or, you know, it also needs to be vetted. And in 30, 40, 50 years, some of the ones that are really good are going to stick around. That idea that there are really good texts from all these different genres is really important. You said sweet sacrament. I, I mean, there's one from the St. Louis Jesuits, uh, Andreessen, I think, is the mm -hmm. composer. And it's O Lord with Wondrous Mystery. It's one of my no, favorites. That no. too is mostly, you know, it's not in a whole lot of hymnals anymore. But if you can find it, it is two of the two verses, and it somehow captures the this cup contains infinity line. It's just like when how many times do you get to sing this cup contains infinity? You know, that's just like not so, often. <laughs> so powerful, right? Not like often. Just, yeah. Yeah. Sing so, it while you get the chance. Right. There's some hymns that like have, have lived with me for and and I think that's that's those ideas of timelessness is really no. important. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll sing to Jesus is a perennial favorite that yeah. evokes evokes the Eucharist within context. Plus, it's in three four, so I love watching yeah. first communicants with their first swishy dress go swishing down the aisle. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's like, yeah. The best. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at the Lamb's High Feast, we sing, and yep. again, yep. Christ the Victim, Christ the Priest. Yeah. Uh, ties in a lot of a lot of ideas. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, Richard, I don't want to take much more of your time. I've already taken enough with our uh, technical delays. I'm, I'm fine. We could talk all day. I could talk <laughs> with you all day about this stuff. All right. This, you're fun. This is this is what we consider fun. I don't know if other people consider this fun. We, we think it's fun. So yeah, exactly. This has been fun. Yes, absolutely. Well, I, I probably should go say hello to my boss because he just came in in the office in a little while ago. You can, you can blame me. Tell yeah. me that, that Richard Clark up there in Boston. Man, he's That's right. That's right. I just, I really want to thank you for being on this podcast. And I think that uh, I I just want to pray for you in your ministry. And thank you. That thank God you. may continue to bless you in your life and in your family and everything that you help do for, I mean, for the Holy Spirit, for the work of God on the earth, right? Thank you. That, that means a lot. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Yeah, All right. Yeah. And likewise, and pray for you. And pray for each other. Heart of the Ark podcast is an initiative by the Office for Evangelization at the Archdiocese of Newark. If you want to find us online, you can find us at rcan.org slash evangelization. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Very soon we'll be updating our social media for the Heart of the Ark, but you can find us on Fireside Podcasts at Heart of the Ark fireside.fm Our theme song is composed by and orchestrated by Eric Hunter, a dear friend of mine. You can find out more about Eric and his performances and compositions at Eric E-R-I-C Hunter H-U-N-T-E-R music.com This has been a pleasure and I look forward to hearing from you and speaking with you in the future.